Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Roots to STEM, a podcast where we talk to scientists about the paths they've taken to get where they are today and the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm your host, Steph Cady, a fourth-year biology grad student at Stanford. In today's episode, we're talking to Dr. Paula Wielander, an associate professor in the Earth System Science Department at Stanford University. Although she is now a tenured professor, this certainly wasn't the plan from the start. Paula's parents immigrated from Mexico in the hopes of giving their kids a better life, so they really encouraged her to go to college and to pursue one of two careers, medicine or law. So Paula went to college with medicine in mind, but that plan changed when she worked in a microbiology lab during undergrad and realized that research like that could actually be a career. And she has been working on microbes more or less ever since, although there was a short hiatus that we talk about in the episode. This conversation with Paula was so awesome because we got to geek out a bit about microbes, most of which I cut from the episode because I don't think everyone wants to hear about that. And more importantly for the actual show, she has lots of great advice for folks who are early in their careers. So I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. So please join me in welcoming Paula Wielander to the show. can you start out by just introducing yourself and telling us who you are, where you're from, and the research that you do? So my name is Paula Wielander. I'm an associate professor um, in the Earth System Science Department at Stanford University. Um, I am originally from Los Angeles. (laughs) um, Went to grad school in Urbana-Champaign and went on to do postdoc at MIT in Boston and before I landed at Stanford. And here at Stanford, my work focuses on um, uh, what I like to say, studying geologically relevant microbes. (laughs) So I'm a microbiologist in the Earth Science Department. And what my group is focused on is trying to uh, understand how microbes make uh, specific molecules and what, but I mean, what how they make them is what proteins and genes are involved in the process of making molecules that are preserved in the rock record. So geochemists often identify different molecules in the rock record that could be of microbial origin to try to use as fossils. Um, but there's a lack of understanding what how, how they're made in modern microbes, what the function of these molecules might be. And so there's a little bit of a lack of information in wanting to interpret these markers in the geologic record. And so people like me can grow microbes, we can do a lot of molecular biology. And so we're hoping to provide a lot of information for the geochemist. So um, but yeah, so that's what we work on. Cool. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? Like what sorts of tools do you use to try to figure out what existed in, you know, 300? Yeah. Or whatever, sorry, like three million years ago. Yeah. Three, however long. Yeah, ago. I mean, three million, three billion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it's hilarious because it's like, you know, I'm used to working with microbes that are really slow that double in like, you know, a, a day, right? As opposed to like E. coli that doubles in 20 minutes. Um, mm-hmm. And the geologists that a day is like, you know, so fast, you know, they're, they're yeah. used to dealing on like millennial time scales. <laughs> so that's something I've learned being a biologist kind of stepping into the geological world is like that there is this discrepancy in like, uh, scales, <laughs> spatial scales mm-hmm. and time scales. So it's fun. It makes it interesting, you know, you know, what I consider fast and what someone else considers fast. Um, but yeah, so that was something that to me was just so fascinating about this field. Like I had no idea about geochemistry or geologists trying to find things in the rock record. I was trained as a, you know, a molecular microbiologist. I was studying methanogenesis, which is the ability of um, uh, microbes to take CO2 and make methane gas. And looking at that from a metabolic point of view. Um, and I was interested in the organisms that were doing it. They were these archaea. And we were kind of interested in how the pathways were regulated. Like, how did it choose which pathway to go through? And so we'd make gene knockouts in different different mm-hmm. spots. So very molecular. You know, it was very, uh, under undergrad, microbiology was very pathogenesis focused for me. And then when I got into this program, you know, methanogens 
or don't cause disease, but they're really important in our environment. Like they're complete a carbon cycle, right? <laughs> and so, so I learned in grad school, not only like molecular biology techniques and how to approach scientific problems from those tools, but like the importance of microbes on a large scale on our in our environment. And then mm -hmm. when I went to MIT, I joined Diane Newman's lab, who was a geobiologist, uh, but she's similar in training. She has molecular microbiology training. Um, and she, she's, she and my other postdoc advisor, Roger Summon, who's a geochemist who looks for these uh, molecules in rocks, um, they kind of like then introduced me to the concept of time. Like, so yes, it's true. Microbes today really impact our, our biogeochemical cycles on our planet, but they've been doing it for billions of years. And how they did it, you know, in the past is probably very different than it's happening now, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, so exposure to Roger's lab and to the, you know, the, um, the kind of his colleagues in geology kind of opened up this whole new world of how people actually study this. It's really, really cool. Um, so there's a lot of different approaches. There's fossils, like microfossils, to try to tie microbes to the past. Um, and so that's a whole field that can be very mm. controversial, right? Because, you know, a fossil of cyanobacteria is <laughs> a cell, right? You know, and so, but, you know, it, it's really interesting how these fossils are interpreted. And it even goes to macroscopic organisms. When you find a fossil of a sponge, you think, oh, that could be, that's pretty easy to discern. Those are super controversial. And so the field of geology mm. is very much about um, interpretation. Um, and so that coming from a molecular biology standpoint where you delete a gene, the protein disappears, it's like pretty straightforward. Um, it was a whole different way of trying to, you know, um, make the case for the work that we were doing, right? It's like you have to kind of have multiple lines of evidence. And it's just really um, a different way of thinking about science. Um, but um, in addition to that, there are chemical signatures, so isotopes, so uh, like uh, stable isotopes. Um, so microbes will fractionate, you know, um, molecules that they consume. Um, differently than say a eukaryote or differently than like we fractionate our carbon, right? And mm -hmm. so finding those isotopic signatures in rocks allows geologists to tie certain types of metabolisms to time. And the fact that they can measure that in a rock was to me like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> like what? I didn't even know microbes did this. Like that, you know, they discern heavy and light carbon or certain sulfur isotopes, right, based on their environment or the types of proteins they have. Um, but then also that you know you have people that have been smart enough to build the tools to measure this in rocks, right? It's just kind of like it was a whole new field that opened up to me. And then molecules like the lipid molecules that that Roger worked on, you know, that they someone had the idea of like, oh, I'm going to extract organic matter from these rocks and put it on a, a GC mass spec. And see what I see here, right? and they see signatures um, of microbes that are, you know, of all kinds of organisms from the past. Um, and so it's really, it's very technical, particularly the molecular um, fossil record, how they mm -hmm. generate that. I mean, there's so many aspects to it, and what we do is kind of a small part trying to help with the interpretation. But you know, there's people that study the taphonomy of these molecules, which is how a fossil is made. So they'll take mm -hmm. these molecules from modern organisms and uh, subject them to the conditions of what we call diagenesis, that process where a sediment turns into a rock. So it can be heat, pressure, all these other that they know from geology, right? And then they look at the molecule that's at the end. And it's Whoa. does that match what they see in the record? Does that match what they found originally in the organism? So that's like a whole field uh, within this stuff. That's so field. cool. Um, there's people that study whether, um, you know, one thing, one problem you have with like organic matter is intrusion from newer organic sources, right? So mm -hmm. how do you know that molecule is actually 3 billion years old? Could it have been something that was very young, like a million years old came in and, you know, and that's a, a real issue. And so there's people that focus on 
uh, rigorous sampling? How can you better, you know, what are the tests you can do with these mass specs, these very sensitive mass specs? Can we build better tools that allow us to test the sensitivity of these? Um, so just even kind of like making the field itself rigorous, you know, so very technical aspects to the field. Um, and then people like Roger who actually go to the rocks, pull out the molecules and try to make some interpretation and try to actually mm -hmm. think about it. So so it's it's very much a very collaborative field, uh, geobiology. Um, and it, it's, um, you know, I've discovered a lot of what, how people actually like, measure. Like you're like, how do you actually measure a fossil rock? And, and it's really just fascinating how these things occur to people and how smart they are. And meanwhile, yeah. they're like, wow, you delete a gene? That's so <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so it goes, and you're like, oh, everyone does I that know, over here. Yeah. As my husband once said, someone asked him, how does your wife delete genes? She's like, he's like, I think there's a kit. She uses <laughs> Okay, so we're going to get to like you and your story, but I have a couple more just science mm -hmm. questions yeah. first. So one is you mentioned briefly archaea, mm -hmm. and I feel so I also um am a newly minted microbiologist, I guess. I started studying microbes in grad school. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel like many people outside of the world of microbiology have no idea what archaea are mm -hmm. or why they're cool. Mm -hmm. So could you talk yeah. about what they are and why they're cool? Yeah, I'm super prepared. I'm this week in my microbial physiology class is archaea week. <laughs> oh, amazing. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. so, so, you know, archaea are very fascinating because they if you look at them under the microscope, they look just like bacteria, right? Mm -hmm. So these are microbes that look like bacteria. And for many years, um, we thought we're just other types of bacteria are very similar. Um, in the 1970s, though, trying to classify microbes was really hard. And microbes were just kind of all lumped together all the time um, as, you know, um, bacteria. And um, yeah, what was it at the base of the tree? Kingdom Monera, right? That's, it. That's what we're all lumped in. Um, but there was this professor at the University of Illinois, my alma mater, uh, Carl Rose, who was really interested in trying to determine, is there a way we can classify microbes, but also take into account an evolutionary perspective? Like, how are these all these different bacteria we're identifying um, through, you know, culturing and whatnot in the lab? How are they related? And so a lot of the, the way these organisms had tried to be related was morphology. Are they cocci? Are they rod shaped? Or metabolism? You know, do they, you know, are they aerobic or anaerobic? You know, do they eat, you know, sugars? What sugars do they eat? You know, and, and those kind of classifications tended to fall apart, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so was there a way we could actually, and they had no evolutionary implication. Just because two things were cocci didn't mean they were related, right? Um, and so at the time in the 70s is when sequencing started to really pick up, you know, this is after the 50s and 60s, where we discovered, you know, genes encode all of our genetic information. And, and Carl had the idea of using a molecular phylogenetic approach, using genes to identify organisms and show how related they are by looking at the changes in genes. And so he um, ended up classifying organisms by this one particular marker called the 16S gene. And um, what he <laughs> what he found was that there was this group of bacteria that produce methane gas that had been studied by another professor at the University of Illinois, uh, Rob Wolf, for 15, 20 years, he had been working on these. He had discovered like how they take CO2 and make methane, what are the proteins involved, and all the biochemistry. And when he did the analysis, he found that their 16S gene was not related to the bacteria or the other higher organisms he was looking at, which we call eukaryotes, right? Which um, are more like complex uh, single-celled organisms. Um, and those are kind of like the two domains of life we had at the time. You had your prokaryotes and your eukaryotes, right? And the main difference was that eukaryotes had a nucleus and prokaryotes didn't, right? So prokaryotes were mm -hmm. bacteria. And so the archaea, he thought, would fall into the prokaryotes, and they didn't. So what we ended up with what we call the three-domain tree of life, where you have bacteria, and then these weird archaea, and then eukaryotes, and everything else, us, right, or eukaryotes. Um, and from there, um, you know, people were like, oh, come on, <laughs> just bacteria. <laughs> but from an evolutionary perspective, they represented a completely different class of life, mm -hmm. right? And, and, 
And so, you know, at first I was very controversial, but since then this has been validated through all this genomic sequencing. And so archaea are microbes that have a different evolutionary relationship to other organisms than bacteria. Um, they um, look like bacteria under the, <laughs> the microscope, but they have uh, unique metabolisms, such as, you know, making methane gas. Um, they come from all kinds of environments. Initially, they were isolated from very extreme environments, like very cold, uh, thermophilic environments, like hot springs. And, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, they were being isolated from volcanic volcanic ponds and things like that. And, um, but with sequencing expanding so much and where you can sequence an environment, they're now being found, you know, in soils and in, mm -hmm. you know, freshwater environments, marine environments are dominated by archaea. Um, and so it was kind of a whole class of species we were missing when trying to think about microbes in the environment. Um, and so there's a lot of distinctions that they have their membrane, like very, very min in the read details, like their membranes look different than bacteria and eukaryotes. Um, and where they fit evolutionarily, how they're related to us is, is a big topic of research right now. Um, but the hard thing with these archaea is we're finding them all over the, all over the earth, but they're really hard to culture. And I think it's why we've missed them for so long. And, you know, um, I think as we culture them more and more, we're finding that some of them are complex. They have um, proteins that are similar to what we see in eukaryotes. Um, they have, you know, uh, I don't think, how, you know, if we've discovered any with new metabolisms just yet, <laughs> but they do all kinds of interesting um, biology and chemistry. And um, from an evolutionary perspective, they're really um, interesting to see, if you look at their genes, how they diverge from bacteria. Probably, I think the, the last time estimate was like three and a half billion years ago. So, okay, so a sort of a bigger picture question mm -hmm. about science. Um, what is it that you love about science? Mm -hmm. Like, what makes you excited to do science? I think the fact that um, I'm adding a new piece of knowledge to the world, you know, is to me just so every time that rush when you find like, you know, that one protein that you predicted might do this function and you knock out the gene and then like the function's gone in the cell. It's just kind of like, wow, that wasn't known before. And now we know. And I think um, I, I never gets old, you know, um, you know, doing the repeat experiments and you know, <laughs> revisions mm. in the paper gets old really fast. <laughs> <laughs> but that initial discovery and just knowing that I have added, you know, a piece of knowledge to the world that wasn't there before for me is just like, huh, it's kind of a superpower. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So now switching gears a little bit. Um, what is your story? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So, so I, like I said, I was born and raised in Los Angeles. Um, my parents are immigrants from Mexico. They came here in the seventies, and um, you know, um, neither one of my parents graduated from high school. But um, you know, they came here because they thought we could have a better life here and in the U.S. And always pushed that you're all going to college. You know, you're all gonna, you know, get an education. That's really the key to um, kind of moving forward in this country. Um, and um, but when I, you know, when you talk to them about what, well, what can I do with the college degree? They'd be like, you're a doctor or a lawyer. <laughs> Those are the two things out there. Um, so I really kind of early on was kind of like, okay, I think I'll go down the medical field, right? I was really good in STEM and, you know, um, as a young age, math and science were strong suits for me. I ended up going mm -hmm. to this, um, 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 magnet school in the Los Angeles school district, which is one of these schools that's focused on uh, a strength. And this one happened to be a STEM focused mm -hmm. high school. Um, and that's really when I kind of got really excited about, you know, science and in particular medicine. And um, I was under the impression I was going to be pre-med. Um, and, um, you know, I had really good mentors in high school. I had in particular my my sophomore English teacher and cross-country coach, uh, Rob Russell. He really kind of helped me a lot with the college process, you know, and how, filling out applications. And he he really recognized that, you know, in his in, as strong as I was in STEM and science, he really kind of understood the the benefit I got from taking a break from that and in how much I enjoyed English class. I love mm. to read and really kind of like, he really saw how much I enjoyed 
um, that class. And so he kind of steered me through, towards a liberal arts education. So yeah. I ended up going to Occidental College, which coincidentally was his alma mater. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a small liberal arts college in Los Angeles. Um, and um, with the idea of being pre-med. Um, but, you know, I was in there for uh, in my freshman year and kind of really thinking about what I wanted to do. And kind of decided to steer more towards um, sports medicine. So I ended up majoring in kinesiology um, because I was a runner and I want to kind of incorporate that. That was just a huge part of my life um, with my career. I thought, oh, this is a good way to go. And and I was lucky in that the, the kinesiology major was a was a heavy science major. So I had to take all the pre-med recs anyway. So I was taking okay. chemistry, organic chemistry. And in my sophomore year, I took a molecular biology class. And in my sophomore year was really my yeah, my sophomore year um, was a really important time because I had taken two years of kinesiology classes and kind of decided that I really didn't want to be in sports medicine. <laughs> um, and so I was kind of like a little bit lost. Um, I'm still kind of like, okay, I'll just keep doing this medicine thing. I don't know what else I'm doing. And in the fall of my, so I took a molecular biology class that I really liked that looked at, you know, um, DNA and RNA and proteins. I was like, wow, oh, this is really, how do people study this was the question I had. So um, that fall, I ended up joining uh, Mark Martin's lab. He's a microbiologist. He was at Oxy. Now he's at the University of Puget Sound. And he's a hardcore microbiologist. And just fell in love with the research. We were working on this organism called Delavibrio, which can Ooh. infect E. coli. And so he was using that as a model of like pathogenesis and how does it survive inside E. coli and what are the genes that it needs to do that. So I learned how to do like plasmid preps and gene deletions and grow up microbes. And so it was just really, really great. But he was the one that I was like, you know, I've been at this college thing for like three years and I'm thinking I'm pre-med, but I really don't feel it. And I'm kind of like, you know, I thought I was sports medicine and I'm maybe going back to med school. And, and I said, I just don't know what to do. And he like told me, he's like, you know, you are a great bench scientist. You should really pursue a PhD. And I was just like, how does one get a PhD? I don't yeah. even know what, what this, is. That? What is this? And <laughs> yeah. one, he told me, well, it's what you're doing now. You have a project and you get, you know, he's like, it's what I did. All professors need a PhD. I'm like, oh, you need a PhD. <laughs> like that wasn't even an option for me. I was like, oh, I didn't. Yeah. And then, um, then he told me you get paid to do a PhD in science. I was like, oh, okay, so this Ooh. is something I need to investigate. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, and I was sold. I was just like, yeah, this is, I had no idea what the career was I was going to be. But even then, like I could imagine myself doing bench science and the government lab for the rest of my life. And that would have been really, really cool. Um, so I, you know, I applied, I took a few years off because one, I, I wasn't ready for the juries. I hadn't like even, it was my senior year. I didn't even know how to apply to grad school. So I ended up, mm -hmm. I got really lucky. I got two tech positions. The first year I was at Caltech in a Drosophila genetics lab. Um, and, um, that was great. It was a molecular biology lab. So it was very much kind of like, you know, doing a lot of the similar molecular biology, just the organisms that I was putting in was a fly, <laughs> a Drosophila fly yeah. um, which was different. And then I spent two years at the City of Hope, which was a, is a cancer hospital out in uh, east of Pasadena. Um, and again, I was in a herpes simplex virus lab, so a microbiology lab, but much more geared towards um, the immune system. So how, mm -hmm. you know, how does the immune system respond to these like, latent HSV infections? And so mouse models and stuff. Um, which cool. really quickly made me realize I did not want to work. Like I wanted to work on microbes from the perspective of the microbe, not from the perspective of like an infection in a eukaryotic system. Mice, mm -hmm. I just I just killed way too many mice. I have killed enough mice from my life at that job. Yeah. And I just, you know, I think the thing that struck me the most was that um, how difficult it is to get um, robust data. Like, you know, because, you, you know, mice are expensive um, yeah. and they're complex. They take a long time to raise a strain. Yes. And if they die, then you're like, oh, no. Yeah. And you're <laughs> end of like do? five, you don't get a good, you know, statistical yeah. significance. And you're like, great, that experiment, I just 
killed five mice and these spleens are not. <laughs> so, right. so I, I, I just found it like just for me a very unsatisfying kind of like as if I say like I find this gene, I knock it out and then in this bacteria I measure the growth. <laughs> it just, it's just like yeah. it's just kind of like very And I do that all in a week yes, instead exactly. of like yeah. two years. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. so um it, it just really appealed to me. And so then um, you know, I got married at that time too. My husband was an undergrad at Oxy with me. And then uh, we applied to grad school together. Um <laughs> it was funny because he was from Oregon, I'm from LA. You know, I went to undergrad in LA. I had no intention of leaving LA. <laughs> you know, I didn't even look at, but when we started looking at grad schools, he was like, you know, we should venture out. He he had had enough of LA, you know, five years uh, there. He was like, okay, I had my fill of the big city. I want to go somewhere different. And so I was like, oh, you want to go to Northern California? <laughs> he, said, he specifically said, I want to go somewhere far. And, we, and then I was like, Northern California is far. I mean, to be fair, if you were on the East Coast, that would be multiple states multiple, different. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. But That's no, fair. he was like, no, let's go somewhere else. And so, you know, um, so we applied to like Illinois, Wisconsin, a few other schools. And um, yeah, and it was just Illinois was the best fit for both of us and really kind of the best like decision for me. It was like got me out of LA, got me kind of on my own. I mean, I don't think I would have ever um, left LA if my husband hadn't motivated us to go there. Um, you know, it was hard to be out there. Being Mexican, you're very much tied to your family. And so to move on and like, and then we had kids in grad school. And so that whole support system in LA wasn't there for us. But um, yeah. But we went to Urbana-Champaign, which was a small college town, very affordable. And, you know, it was easy. You know, we were amongst the cornfields for six years, but that's okay. <laughs> First winters and whatnot. But the program is just great. And, and I think this is where a lot of like my, I talked to my daughter about this who's applying to college right now. It's like, I had a lot of biases towards uh, state schools, thinking that they weren't as good as these private schools. And I don't know where I got this. I mean, probably just from, I don't know, you know, you're in high school and you hear these things and yeah, uh, TV too, I feel like, yeah, you know. Yeah, exactly. Right. And the pressure to just go to like, media. you know, Harvard yeah. or Stanford or whatnot. Right. Yeah. Uh, but gosh, the resources at, at Illinois were amazing. I mean, they just had everything. The classes I would was like these huge molecular cell biology lab courses. And I was just like, we didn't have this at my small institution. Right. We had really nice molecular classes and microbiology classes with a lab section. But this was like they were full on like deleting genes and isolating new organisms and just yeah. like doing a lot of really cool stuff. And so, um, you know, and and because it's so constrained and isolated, like Illinois has to have its own sequencing center. It has to have its own proteomic center. And so mm. it's just kind of like the resources that are pumped into these state schools, you know, you know, it, it are great. And so I think like you can go to these state schools and really cruise and get, you know, but you could also go and just really if you challenge yourself to get a really awesome education so my opinion yeah. of like the the university system completely changed there and that was really good for me to get out and kind of be like very open to different types of schools and what they could offer um yeah so i worked with bill i ended up being in his lab for six years and that was just a great experience he was a, a wonderful mentor both in terms of like science but also work-life balance um mm -hmm. you know he was really supportive of like you know i had family i had kids during grad school and just really helpful with that and all the challenges that comes of being one of the first grad students in your department to have children you know like there's no maternity leave <laughs> it's like yeah you know oh, gosh. i know and like i was like using the 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 chairs the department chair's office to like pump breast milk for my kids <laughs> so, like things like that they were so great they like really kind of just really um pushed what what they could do to help kind of build this environment where like that's okay you know, yeah. uh, even though it's not done. And Bill was and like multiple women in his lab ended up having babies. And he's like, how did I become the baby lab? <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it was just wonderful to have that kind of a support system that kind of allowed me to have a, a, a normal life in grad school and kind of mm -hmm. also gave me this, this sense that, you know, the academic world, is, like my career doesn't have to be everything and that I can do this in a way that is um you know, without sacrificing too much, right? And it's mm -hmm. just like, you know, I know a lot of times it's like there's this mentality you have to work so much and, and you do, you do, but there isn't, you know, there's a way that you can balance it and do it that's good for you.
right? And then that's fine. And that's the way it should be. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, and so when I graduated, Bill, like I, I ended up getting a postdoc with Diane Newman at MIT. And a lot of that was dictated by where my husband and I could go together. So from the beginning, we were kind of like doing this two body thing. And mm-hmm. he he actually was the one that was really um, motivated to have an academic career as a professor, as faculty okay. at a university. And I was kind of like, you know, I'm having babies. I'm not really sure. I just got to finish my PhD. Let's just focus on that. And, you know, I was like, I'll probably just do a postdoc afterwards and then deal with it and see how it is. Right. I was even like, oh, after grad school, I'll just stop working and stay home with the kids until, you know, they're out of daycare and I can get a job at a, some lab or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bill was the one that was like, you know, you could totally do this faculty thing. I'm like, ah, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, I was really scared as much as I loved the research. Like I wasn't sure if I wanted to, you know, his role was to write all the time. I was like, yeah. you know, you just sit in your office writing and, you know, and I was like, I missed the bench work and that's kind of what I wanted to do. But the thing that scared me the most was would I have enough ideas, right? It was just kind of mm. like, would I know what questions to answer, how to figure that out and how to, how to actually do it. And, you know, this fear of like writing grants and supporting people. But, um, but my husband ended up, um, applying for a job at Lincoln Labs, which is a Department of Defense lab run by MIT, kind of similar to Slack as a DOE lab here at Stanford. Mm-hmm. Um, and he got this job as a staff scientist, um, doing quantum computing. And he just that, you know, because it's a DOD, there's no publishing, you know, it's really hard to publish. And so it, he kind of took himself out of that. And like, for the first time I was like, oh, maybe I will do this. I think I was really like, I don't want the both of us trying to get tenure at the same time. It was just kind of yeah. like, you know. I feel like that would be really hard. Yeah. And your kids would be like, hello. Where are you? <laughs> and, you know, and I know a lot of faculty that have done that. And I think it's possible, but it just wasn't appealing to me. Yeah, um, that's fair. But it kind of opened up the window to that. And I wasn't like, he got that job and I ended up getting the postdoc with Diane, which Bill helped. Like he knew Diane and he kind of helped me get that job. Um, but, you know. I didn't leave Bill's lab saying, yes, I'm going to do faculty position. And it wasn't until I got to MIT and saw Diane and saw her job and saw her doing it. And she does it really well. I'm like nowhere near as good as she is. Um, but then it was like for the first time, I was just like, maybe I can do this. Right? Maybe, you know, maybe I am the one that can pursue this career. Um, and the transition that happened in my postdoc is that I fell in love with writing, um, really kind of putting the story together instead of just kind of like figuring out what genes evolved in this and that. It's kind of like, what does it mean? And kind of putting the whole thing together. Like, um, I was just telling my, one of my grad students today, yeah, I just really kind of, when I realized that I enjoyed writing this app, um, you know, yeah, revisions like ugh, whatever, right? but it was like Ooh. the initial, I'm telling a story, um, just really appealed to me that I first thought, and I was okay to separate myself from the lab work for to do that, I kind of thought, okay, maybe I can do this. Maybe this is something I want to pursue. Um, and, you know, I just kind of went for it and said, I'm going to start applying. And what actually what really drove me was um, Diane decided to move her lab to Caltech. And mm-hmm. because my husband had this job at this lab, I couldn't go with her. Um, and so then that got me thinking about, well, I need to think about the next step. And, mm-hmm. you know, I ended up, you know, I applied for faculty positions three years, three cycles. Um, and like the first cycle, I got an interview at MIT, but didn't get the job. Um, and then Diane moved and I ended up going to Roger's lab, my collaborator, our collaborator, the geologist, um, which was like, oh, my God, I don't want to be in a lab of geologists. <laughs> okay, listen, I'm going to hear this because it's really nice of them to give me space. Right. But um, but it turned out to be the best uh, thing for my career because I got really immersed in this field of geobiology. And Roger was very much like, you know, there, there's space for you here. Like the skill sets you have, no one else has. And the mm. questions you're answering, you know, you're, he's a, you know, you're interested in the proteins and you're like this protein nerd, but like, you know, no one else can do this, you know, mm. in this space, right? He's like, Diane can. And, you know, if you come in, you could potentially answer a lot of these questions that a lot of us are really interested in. And he re- that being in that group really showed me how to speak to geologists, what's important to them and, and what questions to ask. And also like, 
my limitation, right? Like I can't interpret the route record. So reaching out and saying, hey, help me with this. And the fact that the community was so open and welcome really kind of also gave me that extra like, yeah, I want to do faculty position and I want to do it in this area. And if I can establish myself in this area, I could also just do the basic molecular biology stuff, right? It's just in an area that is important to geologists. Um, and so, um, yeah, and so after three cycles, <laughs> like the third cycle, um, I... I was at the point where I was like, God, am I really going to try to go through this interview process again? I, I was really bad at the end. I figured out early on I was bad at the interviewing. Like the one, mm. the one-on-ones, like faculty would ask me, so, you know, do you have any questions for me? I'd be like, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was so nervous, right? And so um, yeah. luckily MIT had a really great career service. And, and that was some of the resources I was able to go and talk to them about how do you interview and, and go to workshops on, you know, how do you like – get past the nervousness and like engage and practice, right? You practice, you practice. Um, and so it helped a lot, but it took practice to get there. And really that third cycle, I was like, why do I get a faculty job? I'm just like, I don't know what I'm going to do. But yeah, but then that's when this job opened up at Stanford, which was a geobiology um, job. And yeah, and I got the offer. So um ended up coming here, which has been a good, my husband had to give up his job and he ended up getting a job at Slack. Um, and, okay. and, and his original field was quantum computing. He pivoted a little bit because there wasn't any of that Slack. But in the last two years, they're now way into quantum computing. And so he's kind of like now finding oh. his niche and kind of like, cool. yeah, starting to head his own department and stuff. And so it's kind of like it's worked out. It took a little while. <laughs> yeah. But it's been it's been really kind of a great move. So we've been really lucky with the two body problem. So how did you sort of find your specific niche? And I feel like you were talking a little bit mm-hmm. about this in terms of you had a certain set of skills that nobody else had, but also going back to what you're saying about questioning whether or not you had enough questions yeah. to build a career off mm-hmm. of so how how have you done that how do yeah. you come up with new questions yeah. and sort of stay in a innovative and like novel yeah. research area yeah I, I think for me it's um the literature like I think in, in my postdoc like you know Diane talked to me about this oh she's interested in these molecular biomarkers and she was very interested in a very like she had gotten a grant that I was working on very specific type of molecule known as hopinoids which are just the pentacyclic molecules that are made by bacteria but no one really knew the biosynthetic pathway and so I was like okay I can figure out the biosynthetic pathway um, but it required me to read a lot of literature. And as I was reading this literature in, in, you know, these are geochemists that are identifying these molecules. And, you know, there's like chemists that are interested in, you know, what organisms make them. So there's these chemists in France growing all these microbes, testing them for hopinoids. And you're kind of like, and you're kind of like, they're missing something here, right? They're not understanding how they're made. They're not understanding how they're regulated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that, you know, kind of trying to understand those questions, I kind of understood that all that stuff I was interested in, how they're made, what the proteins are involved, could be applied to what you know, the questions they were trying to answer. But in that literature, I started to like discover other lipids, other molecules, other pathways that weren't known. It was like, oh, you know, my favorite one was like um, sterile. So like things like cholesterol that we make, they're used as biomarkers for eukaryotic organisms. So you find them Mm -hmm. in the rock record, you know, and they go back, I don't know, 750 million years ago, there's this idea that they could be markers for algae or something like that. Um, But then there's one bacteria. There's this paper from 1970, Methylococcus capsulitis makes steroles. And so I'm like, you know, and so the geology literature is, oh, these are biomarkers for carrots because no bacteria produce sterols. And I'm like, but there's a paper from 1970. <laughs> Why is this organism ruled out? So that was like, like, I was just like, I didn't understand. I, like, I didn't doubt the geologist. I just was like, there's a disconnect. Like, you know, yeah. is one paper not enough? You know, it's, I don't know, right? Is one micro. And so that took me into the world of sterols. And yeah, people were like, bacteria don't make sterols, bacteria don't make sterols. And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, have they tested every bacterium out there? I don't know. It's kind of like, and, you know, 
doing some genomic searches, I found that there was like 30 bacteria that had this one protein that is needed to make sterols. Hmm. I was like, huh, <laughs> you know, no one's done this. No one's looked at it this way. And from that, then I got curious to like, what kind of sterols? Oh, well, they make different sterols than us. They don't go all the way to cholesterol. Well, why not? Why doesn't this organism hmm. make cholesterol? Why does it stop? Right. And, you know, um, the, uh, the scientist that discovered the pathway to make cholesterol in humans block he got the nobel prize for discovering that right and then i'm like i'm like well this is a president bacteria why are bacteria doing this right and there's this idea that cholesterol was like this molecule that was the fittest for evolution for eukaryotic cells and you know well the bacteria don't seem to think that (laughs) and so so it was just this discovering these little nuggets or discovering Mm -hmm. that like oh this molecule is really important for geologists we know it's made from this precursor molecule but no one knows what the biosynthetic pathway is and i'm just like hmm it's like the gene hunt i can find it i can do it right and so but it was a lot of like okay i have to sell this story to geologists right you know like i really care about sterols and bacteria because i'm a microbiology nerd right i want to understand why this organism makes it and what is it doing um and and but what what do they want to know right and so mm-hmm. you know i'd pitch it like you know, I, you know, I got to be like, as a biologist, I don't understand why you don't say this is a source, right, of these biomarkers. And they would explain to me, well, these organisms weren't present at the time. And, you know, the molecules they make are different from the sterols. And so then I would be like challenging them. Well, why are they different? What is different? And there was this back and forth dialogue. So it was a lot of going into the literature and finding little nuggets and then talking to my colleagues and being like, hey, this is really interesting to me. Yeah. Okay. I have a couple of questions specifically about your PhD and like before your PhD, because mm-hmm. I think most people listening to this are in that phase mm-hmm. of science. So um, what was the best part of your PhD mm-hmm. and what was the worst part? Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the best part of my PhD is um, learn like the evolution I had in becoming a scientist and taking a project on that, you know, when I joined Bill's lab, the idea was his, right? Like he was like, I want, I want to know what this protein's doing. Let's knock it out. But then from that point, the project evolving into my hands and him giving me the space to take that project and kind of like, you know, he had his ideas for how to test something, but it was like, I thought, you know, I could go in my direction and just being able to take a project from like this idea to like, yes, we solved it and we were wrong about this, but we were right about this. And to me, it was just like, okay, like it was for me, it showed a growth that I now try to see in my students. And that really helped, helps me a lot to feel like, okay, I can do this. Like it kind of was just Mm kind of like, this is really, really awesome. I think the hardest thing about grad school was going back after taking three years off. It was like, you know, I was like burnt out at the end of undergrad. It was just like, you know, I'd been going, 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 you know, um, you know, my parents were wonderful, but really the support system wasn't there for me. Um, you know, in terms of like, you know, I'm in college and you kind of have all these issues and, you know, your parents are loving and wonderful, but they don't really understand. Right. And mm-hmm. so, so kind of like I was burnt out in classes and trying to finish a major and then career decisions. Um, and I took three years off and worked and it was great. It was like, get up, go to work go home, forget about it. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, I love it. And it was exhausting. Cause I like, I never worked eight hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I studied, I went to classes, I did undergrad research. I ran on this team, but I don't know why, like standing in the bench for eight hours, like my body and it turned into like this, like, Oh my God, what a slog 40 hours a week. But <laughs> yeah, I feel like especially doing bench work for yeah. eight hours a day. Is, yeah. Oh, that's tiring. Yeah. It's exhausting. Um, yeah. but you know, and, um, so going back and like, taking classes and taking exams and being an older scientist and being like, I, um, you know, I don't care about this grade. Right. <laughs> and kind yeah, of I that transition. did the exact same thing. Yeah. I took three years off between undergrad and grad school. So I definitely relate to that. I feel like that was actually gonna be my next question mm-hmm. is what sorts of things did you get from that experience that you yeah. think were beneficial? Because I feel like for me, 
having that distance of knowing like this grade is not that important anymore. I feel like a lot of the people in my program who came right out of undergrad were still wrapped up in that sentiment that grades are super important. Yeah. And I had worked for a couple of years and I was like, whatever. Yeah. Get your (laughs) BM on. Learn what you need to learn. I mean, that was the other thing I think I felt like, even though I was older, I felt like I didn't know anything. And so I was kind of like a sponge trying to get everything. But at the same time, it was like, you know, wanting to focus on the same thing, on the right things, right? Um, yeah, I, I think that experience for me, and I, and I think a lot of faculty will tell you that we, we like students that take time off. Um, we think it's important to get out into the world and kind of break the bubble, <laughs> like to, mm-hmm. you know, get out there and work. You know, yeah. I know I tell my students, you know, go get a job at Starbucks for the summer and just kind of like enjoy your life a little bit. You know, not that you're yeah. not going to enjoy it in grad school, but, you know, grad school is the start of your career. I mean, like, technically you say undergrad, but really like you're deciding I'm doing this PhD and that's when the clock starts for me. That's what kind of like really motivated me to like, you know, like when we were in grad school and we were paying for daycare and basically my whole income was going to daycare. And it mm-hmm. was like, and I was like, why are you doing that? You're not, you know, your whole income is going to, why don't you just stay home with the kids, right? And it was like, no, this is an investment in me and an investment in my career because even though they think I'm just in school, mm-hmm. like this is something necessary for the next step. It's part of my career. And so really viewing, being, viewing every step of the academic ladder as part of the career process is something that I think I got by taking some time off and kind of mm-hmm. seeing that, okay, at this point on, this is, this is something that I need to do to get to this end goal. I don't know what that end goal is, but I need to kind of like, it, there's an investment there. Um, yeah, it allowed us to save money, right? So we were able to have come in a little bit more comfortable, you know, mm-hmm. in, and it was just kind of like, um, it gave us that, t- my husband and I had time to just kind of like be married for a couple of years before going into crazy grad school time. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of that. But I also I just think it was kind of like you said, the stepping back, the maturity of kind of knowing like what's important, what's not important, what to stress and not not to get stressed about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not that there weren't mistakes made or anything, but it's just kind of you come in with a different perspective. Um, and I think it, that was really helpful for me. What are some either in your PhD or now in your postdoc at any point in time? What are some of the habits that you have that you think make you a successful scientist? Um, I think a lot of like um um, is being able to focus on the things that are important to me at that time. So, you know, you know, I like when I was in grad school, it was like, when I'm in lab, I'm in lab. And I'm taking care of my business in lab and I am working. But when I'm home, I, I try to be home, right? And I try mm-hmm. to do it. That doesn't always work. And then that's okay. That's the other thing I've learned is that, you know, I always tell, um, one of the hard things I had was when I became a new mom, always feeling like I was doing it wrong. And mm-hmm. so I always tell new moms, whatever you're doing, that's the right way. <laughs> you know? matter. I don't care what you're doing. And I think it's the same with grad school. Like whatever you're doing to like get yourself, um, you know, uh, to whatever you're doing in the lab, whatever you're doing outside of the lab, like that's giving you, you know, comfort and you're able to kind of move forward. That's that's fine. Right. It's like the mm-hmm. way you're doing it is okay. And I think that's something that um, uh, just learning that habit and learning that, you know, like, okay, every, you know, there's always going to be an imbalance. There are days where I'm going to have to focus more on work than my kids, focus more on kids than my work. And then that's okay. And really Bill was really helpful with that. He was like, when I came back, I was having a hard, for maternity leave, I was having a hard time kind of like balancing everything, the guilt of leaving the child and everything. And mm-hmm. he's like, look, there's so many hours in the day and you have to work and you have to be home with your family and you have to, you know, you know, it's okay that you're at work doing your work and it's okay that you're home and not doing your work and at home with the kids. And it's just like, He's like, it's okay. You know, it's like, this is all part of your life, you know? And it's just kind of kind of helped me kind of figure out what I needed to do to kind of keep moving forward. Um, I think the other thing I learned is once I had kids, making my, really trying to fit into the 40 hour week, you know, mm. kind of, and that focus of like, okay, I have this many hours to take care of things before I got to go pick up the kids and kind of like compartmentalizing it that way. Um, as they got older, it was easier to work at home. Like, but when they were young, there was just no way you could work at home. And weekends, yeah. like no work got done on the weekends. It's just, it just counted that young. Um, so kind of like 
being able to structure grad school that way allowed me to be able to then structure my postdoc that way in my job. And so I kind of like, I just, mm. I saw that it could work for me. Bill used to say, I was yeah. like, I was very efficient because I, I realized I could do it and can work. And grad school was a good place to test that out, right? To test out yeah. what does and doesn't work. Yeah. Um, I feel like when I was working, I was working in a job where I was part of a union. And so I was not allowed to work more mm-hmm. than 40 hours a week. Mm-hmm. And when I started my PhD, I was very good about sort of continuing yeah. to work 40 hours a week yeah. because I had developed those habits. And now as it's gone on into my fourth year, those habits are slipping away. Yeah. And I don't have a family yeah. or like, you know, mm-hmm. kids. Mm-hmm. I have a family, but yeah. not kids. Um, and so there's nothing really to stop me from just like working on yeah, it constantly. And <laughs> 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 it's hard to set boundaries because it's, you know, sort of, it feels like the faster I do this thing, the faster I graduate right, kind of deal. Right. And, and there's so. different, that's the other thing. There's differences in your first two years versus the middle versus the end, right? It's just like, yeah, towards the end, it was just like, go, 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 because I got to finish, right? Yeah. And, you know, in the middle, you're kind of like, oh, <laughs> happy part, you know, I can stay longer. I can do that tomorrow. I can come in on Saturday. Um, so, but it, I, I think that the goal is to kind of do what works for you best, right? And it's mm. just kind of, I, I think also, you know, the reality is the pandemic has kind of thrown a lot up in the air, right? It's just like, yeah. I didn't realize how much, like they're working from home. There is no like line. It's uh, how much me getting out of my office and biking home stopped the workday for me. Right. It was just mm-hmm. like, I like now it was like, oh, six o'clock, I got to go make dinner. But then it's like in the middle of making dinner, I'm like answering an email. And it's like, because I didn't have that like disconnect time. And yeah. so, um, I, you know, now it's like, okay, when I'm done working, I go walk the dog. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. get myself out of the house or go for a run or do something to kind of like break it. And yeah, and then I find that it's a lot easier to not be answering email and not continue that. Um, but so the pandemic has played a really, really big role, I think, in yeah. disrupting our work-life balance in a way that I don't think we were aware of. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so generally, what sort of advice would you have for someone who's interested in science or getting mm-hmm. a PhD? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, you know, um, I would always say is um, – kind of look at the general field you like I have undergrads right now that are like so overwhelmed by what to do what field do I go into what do I love right and you know the science is awesome like there's so much science out there that's awesome and so I would really gear you towards finding good people you want to work with I think Mm -hmm. that is really kind of like I you know I did rotations in my lab and in my graduate program Mm -hmm. and there's some graduate programs you don't do rotations and so um this is a little harder in those programs but you know when you're rotating, you know, are you happy there? Are the people happy there? Is there somewhere you want to be, you know? And if, you know, it's okay to let go of the science and try something different if you think it's going to be in a better environment for you. Because in the end, you know, science, I don't know. For me, it was like, I did not go into grad school thinking I was going to work on methanogenesis, right? It was not, you know, like, whoo, top of mind, right? Um, mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, as I read some of the papers, it seemed really hard to me and I was even intimidated by it when I was like interviewing. And so, um, but Bill was such a good person and the people in his lab were so happy and he wasn't tenured yet, but you know, he was doing some good science. And I just was like, this is a place I feel I could be happy when I rotated. And I was right. And, you know, and, you know, in the end, like it was a great lab to have a family. It was a great, mm-hmm. you know, environment, you know, to meet all these wonderful people. And it just really created uh, for me an environment to eventually learn the science, love to love the science that I was doing. Um, but also kind of just taught me that like, you know, um, the more important thing is the people you work with and, you know, and, and then, you know, he's been instrumental in helping me in my career. And so is this, is this someone who's going to help you move forward? 
in whatever mm -hmm. aspect you want, in whatever career you want, you know, and are they open to that? So I, I, I think thinking about the people you want to work with is more important than the institution, more important mm -hmm. than necessarily the science. I mean, the science should drive it. I think so. But I think you can you can define it very broadly. You know, if you're interested in plant science, look at all the plant scientists out there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, microbiology is so broad. There's so much you can do that if you find if you're married to one project or one idea and you're not comfortable with the people that are working in that field, then maybe there's a lot of other cool microbiology out there. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I think the last question then that I have for you is if people wanted to reach out with to you or, you know, get in touch with you or stay mm -hmm. in touch with what your lab mm -hmm. is doing, how could they do that? Um, my Twitter at Paula Wielander is probably the place um, that I'm most active. Um, I have a website at wielander.stanford.edu um, um, and um, they can email me, Wielander. The same. We land at Stanford. Okay. So yeah, look, you know, just Google me. You'll find me. <laughs> okay, great. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. No problem. This was Stephanie. awesome. This was a fun. It was really great. Thanks for listening to another episode of Roots to STEM. And thank you to Paula for sharing your experience with us. I also want to say a special thank you to Lauren Lubeck and Isabel Jabara, who are two wonderful folks who've been helping me behind the scenes with some strategic planning and some social media stuff so that we can try to get this podcast and our guest stories into the ears of as many people as possible. And speaking of that, you can help us share the show with others by liking, reviewing the show wherever you listen to podcasts or by sharing the show with a friend who you think might like it. You can always get in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram at roots to stem pod and at our email, which is roots to stem podcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode.